like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I'll be looking at the final story of a series that Dick published in 1964. Uh, as I've been saying for the last few episodes, this was the last hurrah of Dick's short story writing. Um, the overall narrative of his short story writing is simply that he wrote a lot in the first few years of his career. I think that was pretty common for science fiction writers to focus on the science fiction magazines and getting their name out there and getting works published. But he wrote a whole bunch, most of the short stories. If you pick up a Philip Dick short story, it's probably written in 53, 54. Um, and then he stops and focuses on novels for much of the early 60s but then in the mid 60s he comes back and starts to write short stories again and he publishes in 1963 and 64 around 12 of them uh, and then from that point on he would just write stories occasionally and a, a few of them are very significant like the electric ant the faith of our fathers the pre-persons Th these are important stories but they're much more experimental and and play you know playing with different ideas. So we're really coming to the end of Dick's short story uh, career. Now this story, Precious Artifacts, is a really great capstone story about the frontier. I, I, it may not be the last time he talks about the frontier in a short story form, but I, I think it's one of the most powerful and, and touching and, and meaningful. Uh, and it's really a good example of Dick's transition from seeing the frontier in his early writing as a place of rebirth, of reimagining, really kind of the classic American kind of Wild West frontier archetype. You saw that a lot in his early novels and early stories. But really in the mid-60s, he starts to kind of turn on the frontier and see it as much more of a banal place, an extension of Earth, an extension particularly of suburbia. A place of, it becomes, the frontier becomes a place of like lost dreams and stagnation and boredom and failure and and especially in novels like Martian Time Slip and Three Stigmata Palmer Eldridge you get that and you get it here too in in Precious Artifact so it's a really good story on the frontier and I think in, in many ways it it's is a good example of where Dick's feelings about the frontier are at this point in his career so anyways that's that's my kind of introduction to it this was originally published in Galaxy in October of 1964. You can find it in the fifth volume of the collected stories of Philip K. Dick, the one um, in the Citadel version. It's titled Eye of the Sibyl and other classic stories by Philip Dick, but there's different versions of this. And I think this one's been anthologized a lot, as well as some of these other stories from this time. So you can find it in other various anthologies and publications of, of Dick's writing. Okay, so let's just jump into the, the story. So we meet a, a character, uh, Milt Biskel, who is just coming home from a very lonely job of terraforming Mars for Terran settlement. He goes to see a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. De Winter, and De Winter praises his creativity, but Biskel is still very, very anxious. He would like to return to Earth 
De Winter tells him that Earth does not has not really changed. It's still overcrowded and quite miserable. So we learn a lot here about why Earth is trying to terraform Mars and the importance of this mission of these terraformers because Earth has basically become <clears throat> a garbage dump full of people, really not much there, polluted, overpopulated. You know, the classic kind of image of a, of a future misery you'd get in the 60s and 70s in, in science fiction writing. But he also tells him that since his family is coming to Mars to visit him, he should just stay and, you know, put on a proper wig, put on teeth and these kinds of things. Because this is all necessary because humans have, you know, been suffering the after effects of fallout from a nuclear war. And so their hair is falling out, their teeth falling out. So everyone has wigs and, and false teeth. Um, and everyone's been affected by this. So he says, you know, but I think on Mars, he's not wearing those things because he's kind of just, he's got a very, very lonely job. He doesn't really have to care about that. He says, people are going to come and visit you. So put on your best face. De Winter warns him against burdening other engineers on Mars, too, with his bleak predictions. He plays with a yo-yo and encourages him to just prepare for his family. In exchange, he'll prepare tickets for Biscal to visit Earth. Biscal asks for De Winter to prove that he's human. So in the opening parts of this story, there's some ambiguity about, you know, what what's the deal with these bleak predictions that Biscal's making? And why does Biscal doubt that his his psychiatrist is, is a human. So later on, Biscoll is finally on his way to Earth. He's accompanied by Mary Absoneth. He learns that Central Park has been turned into a parking lot. He learns other locations on Earth have been similarly destroyed, and he gets depressed about the future uh, for Earth. Absoneth offers to share some wine with him. Later, Biscoll is explaining that his purpose on Earth is to prove that humans have lost the war with Proxima and have actually been enslaved, but don't really know it. Absoneth changes the subject to praise Biscoll's work on terraforming Mars. Because now, with Mars terraformed, half Earth's population can move there, and that will be, you know, basically the salvation for the human race. So Biscoll goes on to one of the surviving parks and tests the surroundings. He tests... You know, he tosses a rock at Mary and her ears prick up. Nothing seems quite right to him. But the replicas he thinks he's observing were very, very well done. So he's still carrying on this idea that that Earth has been basically defeated in a war and has been tricked into, you know, thinking that they survived the war and they won it and they're kind of their life might be miserable. But, you know, it's. It's still kind of a fault. It's a facade. It's a simulacrum, right? It's like on the Matrix, right, where the question came up, like, why not just create a, a utopia, right? And no one would believe the utopia. Uh, that's how it was explained. So it's kind of the same here, right? These aliens, if they really did occupy and win the war, why not just create a, a delusion that's happy and pleasant? Well, maybe it's the same idea. No one would really believe it. Now, at Mary's uh, conapt, Biscoll sees that his wug plant has died of dehydration. He thinks this can't be right because Earth should be more humid than Mars and and a Martian plant shouldn't should be able to survive on, on Earth. Or at least it shouldn't become dehydrated. He asks Mary why the Proxima keep up the facade now that he has finished his job of terraforming Mars. She admits that maybe Earth needs to be terraformed as well. And then they head for the Museum of Modern Art. At the Smithsonian, they see a historical exhibit from the war with Proxima. Frustrated at the evasion of, of who we now is convinced are just Proxima in, in disguise, 
Biscoll says he needs to know who he is terraforming for. Mary confesses that his suspicions are correct, that no one on Terra, that on Terra survived the war. He should not worry, though, because the human legacy will live on. The Proxima can interbreed with surviving humans. He asks to go back to Mars, and Mary allows this, but reminds him that he must continue his work on Earth soon. He asks if any life forms have survived, and Mary tells him that dogs and cats still live on in the ruins of Earth. Biscoll goes to see the ruins of his planet. He imagines that the Proxmen will soon replace these ruins with their cities, and something like human life will continue on on Earth. Biscoll collects a kitten. On his return to Mars, Biscoll tries to kill himself by flushing himself out the airlock, but is stopped by the stewardess. He, run, he comes back to Mars and he sees Dr. De Winter. He comes to terms with continuing to work for the Proxmen at terraforming Earth. It is revealed that each human engineer that survived the war is sustained and kept going by one precious memory on Earth, collected during a similar trip. For Biscoll, that artifact is is the kitten. And that's that's the story. So essentially it's this guy going to Earth, learning the reality that Earth's been destroyed, everyone on it's been killed, and basically his only purpose now is to terraform Earth the remnants, the ruins of Earth for an alien invading force. And to keep him sane in this process, he's allowed one memory, one precious memory of Earth. So that's where the title comes from, Precious Artifact. Okay, what else can we say about this story? Well, it's it's a very actually touching story. And it's about, but it's in a very tragic way, because it's about how the things that we love can be used against us as a tool of control. For Biscoll, the survival of a single cat is enough to keep him going. For others, in our world, it might be a child, a spouse, it might be a tryst, it might be a technolo- technological device. I don't know. It, it, for different people, it's different things. But, you know, for, for you know, television series, maybe the TV itself, you know, that there's just maybe one or two things that actually keep us going and keep us content, right? How easy it is to, I don't want to say brainwash, but how easy it is to, to keep us just happy enough that we're not in open revolt against a system that's that's horrible. We all then have our own precious artifacts and they all help to serve to make a horrible world palatable. I, I think in America, maybe it was like the suburban house, right? You know, the, the mortgage kind of tied you, meant, meant you had to go to work every day, right? Even if you didn't like your job, right? But at least at the end of the day, you could return to your home, to your yard, to your front porch, you know, or your favorite television program or whatever it might be. Ultimately, these precious artifacts become tools of control and part of the mechanisms of power. Now, of course, there's also institutional power, and that's not something that Dick's really interested in this story, but certainly in our world, there's various means of institutional power. I mean, in a sense, I, I don't know, if, if the kitten doesn't work for this character, would the Proxmen have still enslaved him, essentially? Perhaps. But we don't. Ha- it doesn't have to go that far, because he is made content by this one precious artifact. Um, a major reason why most of us don't resist the world we live in is there's this that one precious thing that gets us through the day. Uh, and actually, this is this is what Dick says directly in the story. Quote, it would vary from Terran to Terran, a dog for one, a more elaborate simulacrum, possibly that of a nubile human female or another. In any case, each would be provided with an exception to the true state. End quote. Just one, one lie, right, that, that keeps them going. Now, as often are not, as not, our own precious artifacts seem to provide clear alternatives to the world we live in, right? The solidarity of a family, for instance, might 
that might be what keeps us going. But the family also provides kind of a, a an image of solidarity and community against the indifference and brutality of the economic system that disposes people when it no longer needs them. Or maybe if it's if it's a mistress or a, or a lover, you know, we we feel that liberty in it might be more important the liberty one feels pursuing the tryst in contrast to the isolation and confinement of the domestic gulag, right? And certainly Dick thinks marriage as a kind of, often thinks of marriage as a kind of a gulag. He, he's very indifferent in, or not, not indifferent, he's very, um, he's not consistent in what strategy and what marriage family really is and what's the strategy to surviving that. Sometimes he says, basically, you have to endure this because it's a, to do almost a duty. But nevertheless, it's not a pleasant experience for a lot of his characters. Um, our weakness is that we can be unwilling or unable to fight to make the world better because of the precious artifact, you know, exists. Or how do we make the precious artifact the universal reality of the world, right? Rather than just sneaking away with a mistress, right? Why don't we make our, our quote-unquote legitimate relationships much more freer and pleasant and, and fun and exciting, right? That's the real challenge, and most of us really can't do that. So I, I think there's a lot to be said and th there's a lot to think about in terms of what, you know, how the means of control or how that, that little delusion that keeps us going, you know, can be the foundation for, uh, you know, the whole world, right? But most, time, most of them are just content to have the little instead of asking for the whole, the whole, the whole shebang. Now, precious artifacts also speaks to important questions about urban development and urban planning. We have yet another example of the shock doctrine at work here. If you've ever read Naomi Klein's wonderful book called The Shock Doctrine, she basically makes the argument that capitalists liked natural disasters or war or economic collapses because then they could come in and kind of profit from cleaning up the mess, right? So if you know, the whole city is destroyed in an earthquake, right? Well, now the urban planners can come in and remake it, you know, and they usually do this in ways that benefit the rich and create a, a much more class divided, much more, you know, destabilizing kind of existing social institutions that maybe were a buttress against the, the evils of, of capitalism. Now, in this case, it's the devastation of the war between Terra and Proxima that creates a clean slate for Biscal and the Proxima to recreate the world to serve their needs. Now, Klein's argument briefly is that economic, political, or national disruptions have become the means by which capitalism is opened up in some parts of the world, which had maybe socialism or protectionism or something like that. Urban planning is a really good example of this. When an earthquake destroys a city, urban planners are given an ideal space to work out their perfect utopian visions of the world, create their ideal city. In lieu of that destruction, they're not, you know, in the aftermath of destruction, they're not slowed down, right? The wrecking ball serves just as well as the earthquake when Mother Nature holds back, but certainly Mother Nature sometimes helps along urban planning. In Dick's writing, terraforming often takes on the role of urban development. We've seen that in If There Was No Benny Kimoldi, I think. That, that's, that's a story written around the same time that has some similar themes here of, of the efforts to remake a city after a war. Right and, and kind of the nature of power when that's taking place. Here, the devastation of Earth is just the beginning of a grand new project. Quote, someday a purely prox city will rise up here. Prox architecture, streets 
of the odd wide prox pattern, the uniform boxed life buildings with their man, with their man subsurface levels. And citizens such as these will be treading the ramps, accepting the high-speed runnels in their daily routines, end quote. This is the kind of the dream of the new prox city. This is similar to the dream of global capitalists to remake the entire world in their image. And they're close to achieving this in many of the world's cities, right? You know, where one banking district looks much like another. It doesn't depend if it doesn't matter if you're in Shanghai or Taipei or New York City or whatever. The buildings look the same. The gated communities look the same. The high rises look fairly similar. The shops are all the same. You know, it's kind of this, you know, city by by franchise almost. So it's kind of bleak. One shopping center looks very much like another. Precious Artifact is really a good story for looking at Dick's politics of shifting reality. That's shifting realities don't just exist as a metaphysical question, as a curiosity. They're actually political. And there's a political side to shifting realities. That's something that Dick is pretty consistent about, I think, in his career. All the way back to like Adjustment Bureau or Small Town. Or stories like this about the shifting nature of our urban reality. There's always a good reason for it that's resting in political power in some ways. Even in the Cops and Puppets, it's it's kind of framed there as a conflict between the gods, but it's still about who's going to dominate, right? So if we want to think about this story in terms of like the the right to the city, right, and the struggle for who has the, you know, who should control urban development. Should it be the capitalists? Should it be the urban planners? Or should it be our communities through democratic means? You know, that's a political question, but it's, you know, either way, it's going to involve the shifting of our reality in some way. Right. The question is, do we shift that reality in ways that benefit us or do we shift our reality in ways that benefit the few? So I really must insist that shifting realities must be looked at as an essential political, not really a metaphysical question. Here we have a man who's given a world that he knows to be fake and he works to reveal that truth. That's the first half of the story. But the reasons for the fakery are clearly about who is in control of the world. It's not enough to ponder about if the world we live in is real or not, or if there's a reality beyond the reality. It's not just about being in awe of the ambiguities of life. We must find out who's doing the shifting. We must find out why. We must expose them and challenge their right to do so without our consent. When liquidity devastates our autonomy, we must fight for maybe solidity. Uh, or maybe not. Maybe it's about using that liquidity to to benefit things, right? It's, it's you know we could move things towards utopia if we want. That would involve shifting our reality significantly. But you know we there'd be much more democratic approach to doing it than we normally have in our world. Anyways, so th- that's that's what I want to say. So that's what my thoughts on precious artifacts. I think it's really a story about you know, urban planning, about power, about who's in control and the means of control. So there's a lot of lot going on in this story. It's not very long. It's only 10 pages or so, but it's a really good one. So I really recommend reading the story if you haven't yet um, read it. So that brings me to an end of the stories of 1964. So in future episodes, I'll be going to look at... um, Going back to the novels, the novels Dick published in 1965, I think there's two of them. Uh, one is definitely Dr. Blood Money, and the other, I think, is Lies, Inc. That Lies, Inc. was originally published under a different title, The Unteleported Man, I think. I'll, I'll be looking at the Lies, Inc. version, which was a bit expanded. 
so I won't bother with the unteleported man. So I think it's those two. There might be a th another one that he published in 1865. I'm, I'm not sure. I'll have to look at my list. Um, as for after that, we'll look at some stories from 1865. Actually, we'll just look at one called R Retreat Syndrome. There's the the collected stories of Philip Dick include a story called A Terran Odyssey. And if you actually look at the notes, this wasn't published in Dick's lifetime as A Terran Odyssey. In fact, it's just chapters or sections from Dr. Blood Money. So by the time, you know, where that would come up, I would have already looked at Dr. Blood Money. So I'm just not going to do that, that story at all. I'm just going to um, skip it. Um, what's it. Well, the notes here say on the back of the book, A Terran Odyssey. March 1764, that's the date it went to his editor. And it says, previously unpublished, put together by PKD from sections of Dr. Blood Money. So maybe he was trying to sell it as a story at the time. So it's just kind of an unpublished manuscript. But essentially, it's passages from Dr. Blood Money. So I'm not going to bother with it. So there'll just be one story uh, we'll look at for 1965. As I said, it's much more sporadic. You know, in the late 60s, he had like a story or two every, every year. And then after that, it's even more... A mixed bag. Some of those stories weren't even published until after he died. Um, they just were, you know, a scattering in the 70s and 80s. So um, that's what's next. Dr. Blood Money will, will be next. Um, so as always, thank you so for listening. If you have your own opinions about precious artifacts, if you think I'm being too political in my reading of this story, if, it's, if you think it's a much more about, you know, it's got some other kind of symbolic meaning, you know, please engage me on that. I would love to hear your, your point of view. Leave your comments below. Or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at, at gmail.com. So again, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time when we'll be beginning uh, our look at Dr. Blood Money. You And contentment forever If you